Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Christopher Peter Davey, and I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Assistant Professor of Genocide Studies and Prevention at the Strauss Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. Welcome to the new Books in Genocide Studies channel, the New Books Network. I have with me today Claude Gattabuke, and Claude is a genocide survivor and civil war survivor who has dedicated his life to human rights activism. Uh, he's currently the director and co-founder of the African Great Lakes Action Network. And Claude's here today to speak with me about his new book, Survivors Uncensored, 100 plus testimonies from the survivors of the Rwandan genocide, as well as pre and post genocide Rwanda, inspiring stories of resilience and humanity. Welcome to the New Books Network, Claude. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. Um, Really excited to be here and uh, uh, honored. Excellent. Yes, it'll be great to, to speak about the book. So uh, it would be helpful for our listeners just to hear a little bit more about yourself. I wonder if you might introduce yourself and tell us about you and your work and involvement in Rwanda and the wider region. Uh, yeah, so I um, <clears throat> just real quickly, um, I was born in Rwanda. Um, and uh, this is just to add to what you said in the bio. And um, war started in when I was about 10 years old lived through that war for four years, and um, I hadn't been touched by the war uh, other than seeing people who were injured uh, and a refugee crisis that ensued and the uh, general insecurity that basically came out of, uh, was a result of that war and hearing about the atrocities that were committed uh, during that war. I hadn't experienced it directly um, until April 6, 1994, when uh, the Rwanda's president was shot uh, on his plane on his way back to Rwanda. He was with a Burundian, with the Burundian president. Um, and that four-year war was between the former Rwandan government, which was predominantly Hutu, and the um, the uh, rebel group uh, called the RPF, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, led by. Uh, Rwanda's current president, Paul Kagame. Uh, that war um, basically led to that genocide. Um, the start of the genocide, genocide was started by the shooting of the plane, the president's uh, plane. Uh, his name was uh, President Habyarimana. Uh, he was with the Burundian president. And that's when I really was touched by the war in Rwanda. I was... Um, um, <clears throat> At the time, with my mother and my two sisters, my father was not in Rwanda, um, and uh, we started uh, hearing bombings and shellings all over the place, people screaming for help, uh, dogs barking, animals making all kinds of noise. The whole landscape changed. Um, you know, The day after the shooting of the president, we started seeing gangs of extremist Hutus going uh, back and, and forth killing. Uh, Tutsis hunting him down and uh, killing them. So uh, then 
we went into hiding. We ended up fleeing uh, Kigali, uh, which is the uh, capital of Rwanda. And from Kigali, we went to um, northwestern Rwanda. As we were fleeing uh, northwestern Rwanda, to northwestern Rwanda, we were actually stopped at multiple checkpoints. And one of the checkpoints, um, we were asked, uh, my mother and I were picked out of this pickup truck that we were traveling in, and we were ordered to dig our own grave. Um, uh, and um, at the time, I remember a guy looking me in the eyes, um, and he says, say goodbye to life. And I remember those words. Um, a, a crowd of people intervened. Uh, there were women, older men, and... Um, and some children, and they started yelling at this crowd, and I mean, sorry, yelling at this group, and the group um, was distracted long enough for the driver of the truck to come back twice with two men that negotiated for us, and one of the men eventually said, after long hours of negotiating, said, um, uh, you know, the boy and his mom are not going to make it five miles from here, so let somebody else kill them. Um, somehow they agreed to that. And we kept going. The war went on and on and on. We ended up um, with all the shelling. Again, the RPF um, Tutsi rebels, as they were taking over the country, were also massacring wholesales, you know, hundreds and thousands of people. And um, we ended up actually fleeing Rwanda into Congo. Um, we got into Congo. It was uh, it was a terrible. We were homeless. Um, my own story. I mean, it was we were completely homeless. We had nothing other than a spoon, a plate, a pot, and a cup. That's all the belongings we had between myself, my mom, and my two sisters. Um, the sanitary conditions were terrible. Many people, thousands of people were dying daily as a result of disease. Um, and also the, the town of Goma was shelled by the RPF actually after we um, crossed over. And so they were launching bombs into a crowd of over a million people, because there were more than two million people that crossed the border into the Congo um, uh, when when I crossed into Congo. Ended up we I ended up um, rescued out of the Congo by some American aid workers that took us to Uganda. Eventually, to uh, we uh, we went we were trying to get a visa to come and join my father in the U.S. and that didn't work. So uh, we ended up in Kenya, and from Kenya, we came to the U.S. And so my story continued. I actually was afraid of my own story. I, was, I didn't want to uh, share the story. And for years, I really tried to stay away and try to be a different, another person other than myself. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college so, um, that I read the book of Frederick Douglass. Um, a per and this is um, an enslaved African-American who was... Uh, sold into slavery at seven years old, taught himself how to read and write, and freed himself at 21, and did so much work through storytelling and sharing his own story that he was able to not only free so many other people, but also was a great contributor to the abolition of slavery. And it reminded me of a time when the time when we had been ordered to dig our own grave and my wish for the world to know our story, to know what happened. And at that time, I felt that I had betrayed my own story. I had betrayed my own wish. And I was inspired to actually 
start speaking and share, sharing my story. And they, they, when I started doing it, there were atrocities taking place in the Congo. So I started with the goal of sharing with the world what happens to children when war and genocide happens. And so I was very, very, um, uh, I had so much empathy and compassion for children in the Congo who were going through this. And what happened in the Congo basically was Rwanda and Uganda invaded the Congo. They actually went and massacred those refugees that I fled Rwanda with. They also committed a genocide. This is the RPF in the Congo. Um, and this has resulted in the death of more than 6 million people in the Congo, 6 million Congolese people, people who had nothing to do with the things that happened in Rwanda. So I wanted to tell those stories. Eventually, my story caught on and I started getting invited to speak at places and share my story. Again, mostly focusing on stories of children. And eventually we formed, um, I co-founded the African Great Lakes Action Network with um, other survivors of uh, uh, genocides or um, descendants of, and descendants of uh, other genocides that, that are you know, previous genocides. Um, so then we started, you know, our goal was to really bring peace, justice, and prosperity to the, the Great Lakes region of Africa, which is still the case right now. It's one of the richest uh, parts of the world in terms of natural resources, but where people are poorest, uh, in the world, uh, and the part of that is because there is uh, conflict, there is war, there is genocide, there is mass atrocities, there is especially impunity, and impunity is why we want to see justice because we believe that through truth telling, justice, that we can actually achieve lasting peace in the region, and lasting peace is going to lead to prosperity even though it's a, it's a highly exploited region of the world. So that is um, how I got into this. And then eventually um, I also was a part of a group, uh, which is um, the, the authors of this book, Survivors Uncensored, the group Rivara Warirai, which is basically a platform that means the person who's lived through the night is best placed to actually tell the story of what happened during that night. We want to empower people to tell their own stories, to share their own stories, and that is how this book came about. It was for people who people who've been censored for many years, which is part of basically what happens in the region and especially in Rwanda. There is an official narrative that is that was crafted by the RPF, um, the, the the government in Rwanda now, and you better not deviate from that. And if you do, there are consequences. People are jailed, people are, you know, um, killed, and uh, many people have ran into exile because they have spoken up and shared stories that the government does not want them to share. So we provided and created a platform where people can speak freely and speak uncensored and share any parts of the story that they would like to, to, to share. That is how we came about. That's a little bit of my background and how, um, I became one of the co-authors of this book. Great. Thank you. And it's really helpful to have that background for you personally, how you've sort of been on that journey of reflection and thinking about your own experiences and exposure to genocide and civil war. You've mentioned the book a little bit here. Uh, what if you might be able to tell us a little bit more about what the book is about? What are the some of the kinds of accounts that you have in there and what a little bit more about what the purpose was in publishing the book? Um, 
so let me start with the purpose of publishing publishing the book um we have a motto which is the world must know and so we wanted to um we wanted to to share these stories with the world which is one of the reasons why we wrote the book in english and french uh, two of the most widely spoken and read languages in the world um, um so that's one um secondly we wanted to empower people um to to be able to to give a platform and a way for them to to actually share and uh and and let the world know what actually happened to them without anybody telling them these are parts of the stories that you're allowed to, to share and these are parts of the this your story that you're not allowed to share the structure of the book itself uh we wanted to we did short stories so none of the stories that are in the book are the complete um account of any individual we basically um included uh we wanted to to do at least 100 so we did a little bit over 100 it's 106 stories in the book and it covers um from way back during before pre-colonial rwanda like people's families what happened to people's families in pre-colonial rwanda to the people who fled um in the late 50s fleeing um uh during the social revolution that took place in the late 50s early 60s uh who actually some of them are were fighters in the rpf uh the rebel group that i referred to who are now the official government of rwanda uh there are people who um were um affected by the wars uh the war especially in the north of rwanda between 1990 and 94 there are people who were who survived the genocide of Tutsis in 1994. There are people who survived the atrocities in the Congo. People who survived uh, genocide of Hutu people in the Congo or in Rwanda, uh, where you know these are all ethnic cleansing campaigns that I'm talking about when I refer to to genocide and other massacres. There there are also accounts of what is happening in in uh, modern Rwanda, things like the indoctrination of young people, the things that they are forced to do in order to graduate, um, you know, you have to be a part of the system and agree to to be a part of their uh, propaganda machine, for example, uh, in order to graduate high school. We have accounts, those type of accounts. We have accounts of women who have been asked or been used um, as witnesses in courts um using um sexual um favors um people who uh we there is um uh there are accounts of what happens what's happening with young people in rwanda today where especially for young women um people are made to to give sexual favors to hiring managers and things like that so there is so many topics and so many areas that are covered in forced disappearance, which is one of the biggest epidemics in Rwanda, where people disappear and you never know whatever happened to them. And um, it is a well-known practice by the government of Rwanda. Um, so there are so many, um, so many things that are covered in this book. But for the most part, the other big thing is that the book shows resilience by 
the the survivors who tell these stories um the the um uh, the healing that they have uh gone through the um you know many people who have survived their torture survivors and they're still telling these stories and they are determined to share these stories because again one of the purposes is not simply just to share the stories but we believe that through uh, truth telling we can actually achieve justice and by the way by sharing our own stories and telling our own stories uncensored unfiltered we are giving ourselves we are giving uh, justice to our stories we're giving justice to the people who are supposed to have been forgotten and completely erased and totally silenced um we we believe that by giving everyone that voice that we are paving a road to um eventual justice we are also taking part in restorative justice in that process so so there's two 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 versions of justice that we are part of basically by doing this one is restorative justice where we are healing and we are restoring our stories and telling our stories the way they happened um, the second part and, and putting the truth out there the second part is that we're also documenting evidence of those crimes where eventually some of the biggest perpetrators when they face justice that there will be witnesses uh, and that in the end um, the end of impunity is what is going to bring lasting peace so that's that was our purpose that's the content um, some of the stories are from people as interesting as Kagame's uh, former bodyguards, for example. Um, and others are from, you know, we've got a mixture of people who lived in the cities, people who lived in villages, people of all kinds of backgrounds, all um, uh, from Rwandan backgrounds, ethnic, um, you know, all ethnic groups uh, mixed uh, in there, in the book, uh, all a variety of experiences, things that some of the authors, for example, thought, you know, I had never heard of these type of stories. Um, and they and they got to see them. Um, they get to we get to be basically one big family of survivors who are uncensored and are helping ourselves heal, but also healing others. And eventually from one person to a community to a nation, we're all healing. Mm. Thank you. You mentioned in the title and, in, and as you're describing it, this idea of survivor is sort of the main label, um, if you will, for uh, folks who participate in the book and how they're reflecting on their own experiences. For you, what's the importance of using the word survivor instead of, say, your victim or perpetrator in, in the context of these stories? Um, so... Um... The, the the reason um, that we refer our refer to ourselves as uh, survivors versus victims versus using victims and versus using perpetrators, we do um, refer to the perpetrators in uh, the book. In you know various uh, individuals talk about the perpetrators of um, you know who killed their their families and their their loved ones and things like that. Um, and we recognize that there are victims, but for us who are here and for us who are willing and have worked up the, the courage to actually um, speak up about it, you know, at one point we were victims of these things, but once we started to speak, once we started owning our own stories, 
then we became survivors because um, the experience itself, making it out alive, uh, makes you a survivor technically. But we, it's also a state of being for us. You know, um, it, it means that you know these experiences, though we still live with them, we still live with the nightmares, we still live with the PTSD and everything. Um, these experiences are not. Um, um, they're not our full identity. They're not our complete identity. We are more than what's happened to us. Uh, and we are going to do more than what has happened to us. Of course, uh, I don't mean that we're going to harm anybody, but we are going to do better. Um, and uh, we know that um, for us, that term survivors uh, means that we are no longer, we're no longer victims in the sense of, uh, though we have been harmed, we are, our state of mind and our psychological state is no longer uh, the victim state. We are in the state of uh, restoring, restoring ourselves and restoring others. Mm. Thank you. Uh, we might return to that theme a little bit later on, but I wondered if you might tell me a little bit more about the process of pulling together all these accounts and developing the book. It seems like it was a collaborative effort between yourself and a few other authors. How did this come about and you know, what was the, the journey that you went on together? A very, very interesting uh, journey and gives me the opportunity to actually uh, um, mention the names of those, uh, my co-authors, whom I'm very grateful for, um, David Dayambaje, uh, Eric Ngoga, Constance Motimukeye, Eugenie Janti, um, Patrick uh, Rugaba, uh, and there was also, of course, uh, myself, and um, <laughs> Delphine Yandamutso, and, and so it was, it was a long process um, in uh, pulling this uh, book together. The, the book itself um, started again with the platform, the Derivara Uaridaye, which is what shows as the author, um, uh, the, that, that platform being created. That platform was created in 2020, which is uh, where basically we all got together uh, many of us uh, who are the authors, uh, by the way, Oscar um, Nyangoga is, is the other author. I apologize for missing his name. Um, we created a platform to share stories for people to come together. In Rwanda, there is kind of an apartheid, a memory apartheid. There is um, a way that people are separated on the basis of ethnicity with the Tutsis being privileged and they are allowed to share their stories openly. They are allowed, there is a mourning period uh, for the genocide where only accounts by Tutsi people um, are allowed to be shared. Memorials only have, um, they at least recognize Tutsi victims. And so the rest of Rwandans, the Hutus and the Twas are excluded. And we created that platform so that everyone can share their stories and everyone can share their stories openly and make it public because we believe that it's not enough to share your story one-on-one -on -one or in private, um, but it's 
it's even more important than that. It's even more important to share it publicly. So it started with that platform. Then after multiple, and we would do basically do events in Kenya, Rwanda, uh, because that is the common language that everyone speaks. And we would broadcast them over social media, mostly YouTube. And they were actually uh, very popular. Um, events are very popular events um, in um, among Rwandans. Um, we had a lot of attacks by the government of Rwanda because they didn't like the fact that we included people who survived atrocities that were committed by the RPF, that were committed by troops led by Paul Kagame and his uh, generals. And... Um, <laughs> we we continued and then in 2022 um january 2022 one of the co-authors eric ngoga said you know what we've been doing this uh in one form uh which is basically video and spoken and 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 it's out there but it's only kenya rwanda and it's great it's better and we had gotten this feedback from others also which is how we also had started in 2021 broadcasting these stories in English and French, um, but he said we need to put them in writing because there there are many ways to reach people's hearts and minds, and books are one of the ways to do it. So why don't we uh, put some of these stories in a book? Then we got together, and everyone like actually loved the idea. Then we started saying, okay, so where are we gonna stop? And so we started the challenge of we need to do a hundred plus at least 101 stories and um, we made an announcement we said you know we're putting a book out there we you know whoever would like to be a part of it let us know and so people started coming forward there were people who had already given their testimonies in these events that also signed up uh, you know and um, we basically then all divided up our roles we had people um, so you only see these eight, but there were many people who actually contributed. Uh, part of the reason why other some of the names aren't uh, published is because they are in places where they're not safe. Some people are inside of Rwanda. Uh, some of the people who helped us. Um, some of the people are in countries that are near 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 Rwanda, and we know that by doing this, um, the government of Rwanda, if they found out who took part and they had access to them, they would definitely harm them, uh, torture them, kill them, um, you know, do great harm to this and, and disappear them. Uh, this, this is something that they do all the time. So to protect their, I, um, to protect them and to keep them safe, um, we've kept this uh, confidential. We only share that we had participants, not only who shared stories from Rwanda, but also people who actually sh helped us put the stories together um, who were who are some who some some who are in Rwanda so we divided up the work we agreed that we were we would write the book in English and French but a lot of the stories were coming in a variety of languages some came in English some came in French and many many came in Kenya Rwanda some came in the form uh, in, in 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 writing some came as audios and some came as videos and so there is a whole wide range of um, how we received the stories. And so there was a triage process. There was a group of people who would do the, the triaging. There was a, a group of people who would then structure the stories um, in Kenya, Rwanda. And then some of us would translate 
to um, English and uh, French, and then we would uh, submit them to editors. And the editors in those languages would do the editing and then we would finalize the stories and continue that way. We also needed to do it very fast because we knew that once we announced that we were putting out such a book, that there was likely a likelihood of it being um, submarined or that the, the government of Rwanda, which does a lot to disrupt um, the work that we do, would have done the same thing or maybe done something to disrupt it. So we did not announce it until so we put our structure together, we put our plan together um, in early uh, 2022, and we didn't make the announcement, the public announcement, until February of 2022, I believe, maybe March. And um, we, st we kept getting more stories. And eventually we said, we, we have to stop. So we stopped at 106, and we will likely use the other stories in future editions of uh, this, this book. Which we're not sure yet when that's going to happen. Then um, there was the process of publishing, and there's a lot of work that goes into putting a book together. There's the design. Uh, there's so many things. The title, even just the decision on a title, everything was collaborative, and everything took seemingly a lot of time but we also needed to release the book as quickly as possible our initial goal was to release the book by end of april of of uh, 2022 but we realized once we started writing and submitting to the editor that it was not going to happen so the book came out on uh, july 5th uh, of 2022 after a lot of uh, sleepless nights between all of the authors that were taking part of it, taking part in it, the thing that I noticed the most, you know, when you talk about collaborate, collaboration and being collaborative, was how highly motivated everyone was. Uh, I know that the people who were summarizing the stories to make sure that you know we were able to produce a book that wasn't as large as three dictionaries. Um, were going from story to story, and at some point they were saying, okay, I need more stories to do, even after we had done 100. Uh, the people who were translating, same thing. Uh, the editors, same thing, although uh, we started hitting a bottleneck with the editing because we had less editors um, uh, than we had um, authors. And so uh, that part also contributed to us uh, delaying the release, but we really wanted to put out something that was um, of good quality. Of course, after we released the book, we realized that in the big rush to um, in the big rush to release the book, there was one story <laughs> that we had agreed to release uh, that we hadn't released, and so we actually revised the book, included that story, and corrected a number of stories in that book. So. Um, for anybody that's gotten the version that came out, the, the version after, I believe it was September 5th, 2022, um, there are stories where at the very top you'll see, it, it either says this story, the last story, 106, story 106 was added. Um, and there are a number of stories that were uh, revised and it's marked in the book. So um, that was the whole process, basically, mm. in summary. Oh, that sounds really interesting, and it, it you know a lot of folks who do interviews and um, 
are interviewed on on this channel or across New Books Network are involved, you know, academically in some way or another. But I think regardless of of, of who one is and, and your background, right? I mean, the the challenge of pulling together a book is such a, a big thing, and so it's helpful to hear about how that works from a, a quite a big collaborative um, perspective with you know the multiple number of authors and then the team of uh, folks that you worked with to to make the book happen. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the challenges of, of bringing together, you know, what really is a, a global diaspora, because, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, those living in Rwanda, as well as those in the region still, you know, places like Kenya and Uganda, you know, it's dangerous for them to participate in such a project. But then you also are working with folks, as I'm sure, you know, here in the US or in Canada, uh, Europe and other parts of the world. What were some of the, the difficulties and challenges and kind of trying to bring together such a dispersed group of survivors? Challenge number one was making sure that the participants were safe, those who are in the region. That was number one. Challenge number two was the time zones. As you said, some of us are in the same time zones or close enough, you know, being in the US and Canada and Latin America. But then we were uh, working with people on the African continent and Europe and also in Australia. So um that the the challenge of even just meeting finding the right time to meet and do uh, uh whenever we needed to collaborate that was um that was challenging uh, the tracking the work uh keeping everything organized making sure that um you know one of the things that we did was we we obtained consent from everyone in order to actually publish their story that they, you know, they explicitly agreed that it would be included. So there are stories that initially folks came forward and said, I would like my story included. And when we asked them to give us um, um, written consent, they didn't. And so we did not include those stories. So that was another one of the challenges. Um, uh, basically, just making sure that we get everything in a timely manner. We, the deadlines, adhering to deadlines was really important um, a really important aspect of it because if we were loose with the deadlines, we might still be writing today, um, almost a whole year and a half later, uh, or a whole year later. Um, if we um, didn't adhere to the deadlines, uh, some people would have gotten burnt out. It was a lot of work. I mean, people spent so many sleepless nights um, I was an hours on end to make sure that this happened and it happened in a timely manner. The other challenge is the language. It's, um, you know, though many people um, sh- speak uh, Kenya Rwanda, uh, not everyone that participated speaks it or speaks it fluently, but also um, just going from one language to another. Uh, sometimes stories after we translated and went through it, they didn't make sense. Um, and so we had to go back and make sure that the, the stories made sense and that the authors uh, of the books, the survivors um, who shared those um, those stories um, were, that they were comfortable and agreed with the content uh, that was in there. Um, the, other, um, the other challenge was the tools, you know, not everyone you know, if we were talking, some of us, we have ease, easy access to, you know, laptops and things that we can use all the time to 
to, to, to do the writing. Um, some of the participants and some of our co-authors are in places where, uh, you know, they needed resources. And so we had to provide resources to make sure that they could proceed and, and work efficiently. Um, so there was all of that. Um, the other was, the biggest one, I think, was actually us agreeing on uh, what the cover would would look like. So the biggest, one of the biggest fights besides keeping people safe, uh, the safety of uh, the participants was um, consensus, coming to a consensus uh, on, especially when people, we had gone for days and weeks discussing and um, evaluating and, um, you know, looking at things and saying, okay, we like this, you know, somebody says, no, this one, we probably need to do it differently and things like that. You know, coming to a consensus with the eight, the eight main authors, especially for the cover, was a challenge. At one point, we were actually really tired, and you know, uh, folks had said, "I'm gonna, this is okay, this is good enough." But then we said, "You know what? We gotta catch a second wind. Let's get it right." Um, this there is some dissatisfaction with this cover, and eventually, we all found one that we agreed with. So our, our, our um, designer was, uh, you know, was was excellent uh, uh, in making adjustments and changes and everything because the concept that we started with was completely different than what we ended up with. So those were some of, um, some of the challenges. Um, the other challenge was doing it quickly, uh, the timing. That, that was a big one. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned about the cover because I was thinking about that as you were speaking earlier. Um, and for those of you who haven't seen a picture of the cover, I wonder if you might be able to just briefly describe the cover that you that you use, I think, for both the English and French versions. Um, and you know what was what was so compelling about that image and, and why you chose to go with that one in the end? You know, it's the same cover for um, for both except the color. The English version is yellow, mostly yellow. Um, the French version is kind of a brownish, dark green type. It's brown. It's, it is brown. Um, and the the design itself, the, the image on there is a woman carrying a baby. And so it's about caring. Um, one of the things that we really, really wanted to, to shine through was about, you know, showing care for others. Um, but also a lot of the stories in the book are actually stories of people, uh, stories that we live through when we were still very young. Many of us were children. Many of the people who were affected, um, were women. Um, and so that was important to depict, but it also, we wanted to show hope um and um and and also represent the region and so the book itself has uh landscapes from the region the the green the lush green um hills and mountains uh the lakes the bodies of water um all of that is in there and it's it's a beautiful region uh and we wanted to to also have that included so the image itself is a combination of the woman carrying the baby taking care of somebody, somebody that's vulnerable, uh, being taken care of, um, somebody that's resilient, taking care of um, someone else. Resilience was a big theme that we wanted to, 
to come through, to shine through, um, and also uh, showing what this, you know, the beauty of the region and the beauty that we are aiming for. Mm, thank you. That's really helpful. I wonder if you could just say briefly, and this is a bit more of a general question, what the role of survivors uh, can be or should be in telling their own stories. Because you know, oftentimes with you know the these many books written about the Rwandan genocide and about the Rwandan story more broadly, are, are often told by you know people like myself who you know have been to the country and do research on Rwanda, and um, and this is true you know of. Uh, places like Bosnia and other parts of the continent of Africa and then even in other parts of the global south, right? We, we do rely on uh, outside experts to tell the story of survivors. So I wonder if you might be able to just briefly say a little bit about, you know, just generally what you think the role of survivors is in telling their own stories. You know, you're taking me back to when I first started speaking out and first started uh, writing, trying to publish articles. I was a really bad writer, too, by the way. Uh, my my articles were incoherent when I look back at some of my <laughs> my initial articles, but then um, I started getting some guidance and folks would say you know focus on one thing, and then I would submit articles and I would get pushed back and they would say yeah this has not been published anywhere where is the source, and I would say I'm the source, and <laughs> and that usually was uh, rejected. That's not the case as much anymore, but. Um, it's, uh, it, it's something that I, that I experienced. And I think the more voices, um, or that you have from the survivors, I think it makes the, the story and the research more complete. Uh, it makes it richer and it also gives a perspective, a direct perspective, a perspective from somebody who is, uh, directly involved. And I think it's important. Um, so you're talking about you know, books being written by, you know, in the academic world, you know, by researchers, also by advocates and things like that, and people, in folks like that. Um, but I think it's important, you know, to always have that voice, the survivor voice, which brings a perspective where, you know, the readers of the book can basically say, you know what, the voice that's here, the person that actually lived through this experience that is in this research is somebody that I can shake hands with. There is a human face to this. The role of survivors primarily is to bring a human face to these things, is to, to, to bring that touch of there is actually a real person behind this. This isn't just research. This isn't a movie. This isn't something on the screen. This is a person's experience. The other is that um, they add credibility to to what is being put out there. I think because you know if if you do your research and say um, there was a bombing campaign in 1994 in Rwanda and I'm here testifying about it because I lived through it, I think it adds to to what you're saying. Not not to downplay the methodology and everything that goes into the research, uh, but also I do think that having direct witnesses is very helpful. The other thing is that survivors, I think, have a big role to play both in healing, moving forward, and also I think it's a lot easier to move people's hearts and minds when you're speaking about personal experiences versus 
just research. That's my thoughts, and that's kind. That's my opinion on it. Uh, that survivors really have a big role to play in um, not only bringing additional credibility to the research, but also to to really humanizing uh, yeah. the stories. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think you know there is something very crucial about that exchange and relationship between survivors and those who are seeking to tell their stories and then you know the role of survivors in, in, in doing it you know for themselves um and I, I think you know interestingly you've described you know quite a a, a distinct you know, methodology that you had in working from the you know those are the initial conversations that are broadcast online to moving towards the the book format um which is something that you know it seems evolved quite organically which is really interesting to hear about you mentioned um, through you know, in our conversation already different themes in the book, those that are in the title around resilience and then some of the uh, timelines and places that the stories highlight uh, throughout the book. I wonder if you might be able to speak to some of the other themes that popped up across these this collection of 106 stories. Uh, I think the biggest one was um at least for me um it was the effect on children that wars and genocides have uh but also the plight of women um there's so many stories that are difficult to digest um on things that that happen to to women and things that children uh got to see um, the other thing that jumped out is that consistently, um, you know, many times and often the stories are presented as, you know, um, savage Africans, you know, tribalists killing each other. The, but what emerges out of the book for me, what I saw was that we, uh, the survivors in the book, recognize that though ethnicity was used as one of the ways um, for the the various groups competing for power it was actually a power struggle and it was a power struggle between two groups that were power hungry and they wanted to they they did everything possible to either maintain power or to take over power uh the thing that i think is missing though I think the missing theme is there's there is some parts of it, but it's not big enough. Um, I don't think it's uh, it's it's obvious enough to the reader. Is the role of um, Western countries, the U.S., the U.K., France, Belgium, and so many others? That's not in there. The role of NGOs, some of it is in there, but it's not very um, it's not prominent. And I think those are things that. Um, <clears throat> would be important to include in uh, future future versions. But the biggest theme, you know, that came through was the effect on women, um, the difficulties and in, in, in the work that it takes to heal um, and to be able to actually come forward and speak. The other piece was that so many people were really just excited for having the opportunity to share their story. And, and they, they, they encouraged others to do that. And, and their biggest thing was that by doing this, I'm making a contribution to a peaceful 
um, and lasting peace, a solution to lasting peace. They really have made a conscious decision to be a part of the solution. Mm. Thank you. I wanted to just kind of zoom us out. Oh, a little bit to the wider region. Um, you obviously we mentioned earlier that you're a part of an organization that works around issues in the Great Lakes, and you've caused conflict in Rwanda. You know, even before the 1990s was a regional issue. And so, just thinking about the Great Lakes region in Africa, um, how is this book a model for other countries that have experienced these kind of layers? of episodes of violence? Um, I think um, it's, um, it opens, at least it shows others that um, don't let the, let me, I'm going to use that word perpetrator, don't let the perpetrators have the last word. And um, it also shows that um, you can go from many, many, many near-death experiences to actually being able to to reach the world and and um, inform the world because um, this is a model in the sense that um, the book itself is a model in the sense that this is a tool not only for education but it's also for advocacy. It's also uh, to inform. You know, I personally believe that. There, there are enough people that care, and they care about um, peace for themselves and peace for others. But often they're not aware, and awareness, you know, people don't care because they're not aware. Many, uh, there are people who don't care. Many who don't care, regardless whether they are aware or not. But I think there's a critical mass of people that could help bring about change in any place in the world once they are aware. And so this is a model in the sense that when you take matters into your own hands and you actually start building on that critical mass, you can uh, move people into action. The work that we do with our organization, the African Great Lakes Region, uh, sorry, the African Great Lakes Action Network, we actually do put a big focus on raising awareness, informing the world, um, being, um, getting to the masses, not only for people who are in the region, people who are directly affected, but people who are indirectly affected, again, because, as you said, zoom out. When you zoom out of an issue and you're not, you know, mistaking the tree, you know, um, you know, uh, missing the forest for the tree, you can actually also make an assessment and make a contribution. And we see this as a way to not just share our stories among ourselves and just be done with sharing the stories, but it's a way to rally the world to the real never again, if you will, you know, in genocide studies, you know, we talk all the time about never again, but never actually putting it into practice that no one's going to be able to commit such atrocities and not be called out, even if they end up, um, in power and even if they end up being the hunter that tells the story it's gotten to the point where now the lions are also telling their own stories and so that's what we want the world to take away that's what we want any communities around the world be it in the great lakes lakes region of africa or elsewhere who are affected by atrocities um people who may have been disempowered 
or censored that now you can take matters into your own hands and you can start the process of actually accountability. Mm. Thank you. So just to wrap up here, I wanted to ask you one last question about so this on this broader uh, scale. Uh, you described earlier about how you know the the group moved from doing these online conversations and broadcasting to then moving towards the book. And I wonder if you had any thoughts or comments about you know different kinds of spaces that provide expression of memory for survivors, and you know what some of the I guess the pros and cons of using online spaces versus a physical book, and if those different kinds of platforms have different purposes, um, particularly for you know diasporas that are spread globally um, and have different access to different resources, you know, are there are there better ways of providing for expression of memory for diasporas? Um. Thank you for that question because it gives me the opportunity to actually thank some of the uh, organizations that have really um, been um, key to us being able to, to, to use these platforms. There is the HMG Studio, which uh, is, um, they, they, they actually, it's a, it's a studio that has broadcasting partners in various parts of the world where these stories are seen on on uh, various uh, TV channels, but also they broadcast uh, and stream on YouTube and Facebook. And they've been very, very graceful in giving us this space uh, to, to use uh, that platform. So I invite everyone to, to, to take a look at it and possibly, you know, survivors from other parts of the world um, also uh, leveraging uh, the generosity by the studio. Um, there is also um, Friends of the Congo and Black Star News uh, who have been in our organization, AGLAN, that have put, uh, put up resources to sponsor these conversations and to make sure that we're able to, to have these platforms. So the difference between online and written, uh, physical uh, versus virtual, is uh, the, the, the cons. Let me start with the cons on online. There is the hacking constantly um wherever and this is this isn't just on hmg but many platforms in various parts of the world have told me that whenever we we have conversations they get hacked you know i've heard it from platforms that are based in new york platforms in nigeria platforms in jamaica in various parts of the world so there is the hacking and there is the disruption um, that could happen by doing this online the advantage is that when you put it out there uh, online, for the most part, uh, if you use uh, platforms like YouTube and Facebook, it's usually free for the um, the consumers, those who would like to see the stories, um, uh, to, for the audience, for the audience to to experience it and see it. Um, the other thing is the visual part uh, when it comes to uh, online platforms. The person being there showing their face um, and you can hear their voices is probably as close to in person as possible and that is very helpful and it brings a lot of uh, credibility of course people can make up things online but uh, for the most part you're seeing the person and it's easy to believe and um, easy to digest you feel connected um, 
but that's um, that also requires you being in a place or having devices where you can um, you can um, you can access those things. And then when it comes to books and publications, things that are physical, I think a person being able to hold it in their hand and being able to go to the park and, you know, they're sitting at the park and they just want to open it and read it, or they're, you know, laying down um, at home and they open it and read it and things like that. It's, it's a completely different feel. Um, and it also brings another level of uh, credibility because the way you tell a story when you're speaking is different than the way you do it when you're writing. And for some reason, uh, it can both be captivating, but usually when it's written, it's a lot more, I think, and at least in my opinion, it's a lot more captivating when a person starts reading it and starts getting into it. I mean, I've found myself reading books and laughing out loud or crying. Uh, of course, that happens also online, but it's not as easy to be a compelling public speaker as it is to to write it in a book and make it a compelling story. It's very true. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, it's very true. Well, thank you for sharing that and that insight. And I, I think that last question, I, I, I've personally been thinking about a lot recently in terms of, you know, what are the best ways to provide memorial spaces where stories can be shared. And I think this work is a really good example of kind of this dynamic ways in which, you know, different platforms can be used and approached. Yep. And if I can add one, given that you're in the educational setting, things like, uh, you know, um, online tools like podcasts, for example, what we're doing here, um, you know, in addition to the other platforms that I mentioned, there are Twitter spaces and so many other ways those are all good tools, I think, um, to to share with an audience, but also for the um, the, the the survivors and, and people who have stories to tell those stories. Uh, but also the other the other is considering you know guest speakers for lectures, you know guest lecturers and things like that. Um, they may not give a lecture, a structured lecture, um, to you know as you would as a as a professor, um, a professional, but they may they they will add elements that I think are helpful in education. So there are many ways. I mean, churches can do that. They can provide uh, platforms for memory, um, community organizations, uh, and then there's self-organized things. Uh, one of the things that we did with this book in recent times was on January 28th. We actually held a book signing event that was three parts book signing, conference, and a social. Um, and it gave an opportunity for the public to actually meet the authors um, in an environment where you could just have a relaxed conversation. Um, there was some structure, of course, with the book signing and the conference, but all, but also the social allowed people the access to, to hear and speak to the authors directly. Mm. Thank you. So we'll wrap up our conversation now. I have just a couple of last questions for you that typically on the New Books Network, we always ask uh, folks that come and speak with us. Um, I wonder if you might be able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment or what you anticipate coming uh, in the future for you. So currently we are working, uh, myself and um, 
and uh, the platform that we um, the the Rivarway platform and my co-authors, along with other colleagues that are part of the platform. Um, so one of the things that we do every year uh, since 2020 is doing a um, providing a memorial space um, commemoration and non-discriminatory commemoration uh, event. So we are working on the one this year for end of April. Uh, and then we've already started working on the one next year also, which we, we are, you know, we always, we're always working on innovation and doing something really impactful. And we're looking for it to be one of the most impactful events. And this is going to be 30 years, uh, the 30 year anniversary of the genocide uh, next year. So those are the things that we're working on. The other is we have requests to translate the book in other languages. So we're working on, um, potentially uh, getting the book into Sp Spanish and Portuguese and Arabic, but also there's high demand for Kenya Rwanda. So those are all the things that we're working on. Uh, me personally, as part of um, Aglan, uh, we are working on, um, we, we're working on continuing to not only raise awareness um, on the atrocities that are taking place in the Congo, but also really pushing for the implementation of the recommendations in the UN mapping exercise report, which is a report that talked about uh, the atrocities and genocide and you know so many other horrible um, uh, incidents. Uh, and when they refer to them as incidents, these are like large massacres, these are large um, you know, um, um, events that happened uh, in the Congo that we want to implement because, again, we do have a goal to see peace in the region. And to get there, we believe that justice is important, impunity has to end, and uh, we are working hard at pushing to get those recommendations implemented. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And so I, I'm presuming uh, that one would be able to, any of our listeners would be able to see uh, you on social media and find out information about these upcoming events, these memorials for this year and next year. For sure, for sure. And I also personally have a lot of um, in invitations to speak. So I'll be very busy at speaking events. And uh, please do look out on social media for various uh, events around in the U.S. and also outside of the U.S., and also, we have some invitations to potentially have these book signing events in other parts of the world with my co-authors, uh, and some of them may be as early as uh, May. Okay. Well, I will uh, put a note on um, the information for the podcast, uh, linking in some of your social media um, and a, a link to the book as well. Uh, the no problem. The last thing I wanted to ask you, just as we wrap up here, um, thinking about your writing and your activism and your experience as a survivor, um, are there any particular books, films, or even plays that you might recommend for our listeners that have really influenced you in your journey? Number one is Frederick Douglass's book, um, um, Escape from Slavery. The, when I read it, I read the children's um, the children's book first, and then I read his book. Um, that was the book that inspired me the most. His life inspired me the most um, in um, activism. 
So um, that would be the one that I recommend, the very number one that I recommend to, to folks to read. Um, when it comes to uh, books about the uh, region, um, the book by uh, Judy River, uh, who is a Canadian author uh, in praise of blood, uh, I find that book to resonate a lot with me. And for people who want to see kind of the inner workings of the RPF, there's a book called Do Not Disturb by Michaela Rong that kind of is, is about the inner workings of the, um, the RPF. Um, and so a little bit of the insight of the RPF. Uh, this is on Rwanda. Uh, but as far as an inspiration, definitely uh, the Frederick Douglass book is, is, is the one. Great, excellent. Thank you so much, Claude. So I've been speaking with Claude Gatabuke about his uh, book co-authored with uh, a group of eight other authors. Uh, the book is called Survivors Uncensored, 100 plus testimonies from survivors of the Rwandan genocide. Sorry, as <laughs> let me reread that. 100 plus testimonies from survivors of the Rwandan genocide, as well as pre and post genocide Rwanda, inspiring stories of resilience and humanity. Uh, thanks very much for your, your time, Claude. Thank you so much, Chris.